two kings compete to make the finest and most difficult labyrinth. The first king has his subjects make a labyrinth the size of a city, which takes his rival king three years to escape. The second king drags his rival into the middle of the desert and leaves him there alone, never to escape. This is Eyeball, and I'm your host, John Lewis. Today we have special feelings with my good friend, Kenneth Dickerman, a photo editor at the Washington Post. Ken and I have known each other since Mizzou days back in college, and we track that journey we've both taken these 20 years since then. We talk about baptisms and TV spoilers. We talk about how seriousness and pretension can impede creative potential. We talk about Scandinavian photography in 1990s anime and about the qualities that make a great photo editor. We were going to go to Amsterdam, which happened because our friends from college are, you know, terrible people. <laughs> I wanted to go to New Jersey to Nick's house to have a poker night. We just yeah. wanted to drive up there one night, play poker, lose some money, drink too much whiskey, fall asleep on his couch, wake up, drive home. Mm-hmm. He's got a guest room. Yes. Plenty of room for me. No problem. <laughs> that simple idea was turned into, we'll do a long weekend in Amsterdam. I was like, no, 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 I don't don't want to go to Amsterdam. I don't want to get on an airplane. I want to get into Jersey. I want to play poker. I want to lose some money. I want to drink whiskey. I want to come home. No, 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 it's better. We'll go to long weekend in Amsterdam. Just all the boys. I I don't want to. They're like, no, your birthday is coming up. That's we'll say. We'll go to Amsterdam for your birthday. This was like in July. I was like, it's fucking July. That's October. I just want to fucking play poker. I just need a night. You know, like I'm just come on. Nope. Going to Amsterdam. So eventually it got to be a point where that was a bad idea. Yeah. No shit was a bad idea. <laughs> of course. Kenneth Thickerman, my buddy, my old pal of these many years. That's uh, right. Welcome to Eyeball. Thank you. Welcome to Special Feelings on Eyeball. I wanted to talk to you not only about our history, but about your personal history, because you grew up in Macau and you grew up in a missionary family. And I've always kind of wondered, how does that background, and how did that early childhood world you were living in, how does that affect the way you saw the world and how does that ongoing as a photo editor change the way you see things? Yeah. I mean, I think it had a big impact on why I wanted to become a journalist in the first place. In, in some ways, I think journalists are kind of like preachers, you know, since my dad was a preacher. Yeah. I mean, I, you're trying to expose the wrongs in the world and bring attention to the things, you know, that, that are wrong, that should be right. All of those kinds of idealistic things drove me into wanting to go to Mizzou in the first place and study, study journalism. What part of Christianity was he? Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist, right. Interesting enough, I ended up going to boarding school in Taiwan with a bunch of other missionary kids. And being Southern Baptist, we're actually kind of the, quote unquote, liberals, which is kind of <laughs> interesting because Southern Baptists can be pretty conservative. They can be. But my parents were actually, I mean, they were conservative, but very understanding, never, never judgmental. I was baptized in the Southern Baptist Church. Really? Yeah. Full immersion. Interesting. My father baptized me. That's, a, that's actually, I mean, I have many things to say about the Christian faith as it's practiced today in America, of which I won't say any of them on a podcast. Because and I probably agree with a lot of what you were going to say. Probably do. Uh, I think any... <laughs> 
lots of people probably would yeah. and, and nothing none of it's controversial but that's really beautiful that your father was in a position to do that with his son i mean it yeah is, it's a very special thing yeah actually it really was because um he was not the pastor at the church he had it was uh, so i'm from missouri i was born in rolla missouri and we were back from the mission field for a year on fur what was called furlough and it was i guess i was in the fourth grade I didn't know you were born in Rolla. I was born in Rolla, Missouri. The former geographic center of the United States. Is that really? Right? Yeah, because that's where the U.S. map, like whatever the map making department is, used well, to be in Rolla, but they changed actually where they decided the middle is. That would make sense. I mean, the U- UMR is actually a mining school. I right, think right, right, right. And yeah, uh, yeah my, my dad was the former minister of music at the church before they took us over to Macau in like 1978. Anyways, we were back, and I guess it was 82. Yeah, it was a special thing. My dad was my, an ordained minister um, and back in Macau, but we were back in, in Rala, and he was, he was allowed to be the one who put me under the water in front of the church. That's cool. Was it yeah. actually in a body of water? Well, I mean, it was like a baptismal. Okay. Yeah. So it, in, in the in Baptist churches, at least, it's right at the front of the congregation. It's usually... When there's not a baptism going on, there's like a curtain that hides it, yeah. I guess. But yeah, I remember That's getting in. It was did. very cold and it it was kind of like being in a little, tiny little swimming pool. Yeah, ours is like a like a hot tub, basically. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I was I was little. I was probably Yeah, I was in a robe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, my, my dad robe. was in a robe and yeah. he put his hand over my face and dunked me under and I was baptized. There's a story in my family before I was baptized that church. I think maybe the first time we ever went. We moved to Georgia, rural Georgia. Our farm was 10 miles away from where they did the redneck games. I guess they still do. Okay. The first time I was there, there was a baptism of someone else. And I I got, I had been three or four. Seeing what was happening, I wanted to get this better view. Clearly something important was happening. I was standing up on the pew mm-hmm. next to my mom. And then they dunked someone, full immersion, down in. <laughs> I yelled out, oh my goodness. <laughs> And oh, everyone hilarious. apparently cracked up. It's great. And I forgot that we have a kind of a Georgia connection there too. Because yeah. I did my undergrad at uh, Mercer University in right. Macon, Georgia. Macon's uh, wasn't very far from the same area. Well, it's right there, kind of in the center of the state. I we lived on a farm outside of Davisboro, outside of Sandersville, which Man, was that no was the idea. big town. I have no idea where. No, that you is. you wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> How long were you in Macau? I was there for fourteen years. So. Grew up there, was homeschooled for a while. Actually, we had a, a missionary that came over to teach all the missionary kids. So I was in a, basically a one-room one room schoolhouse kind of thing, and there were no other kids in my grade. So there were like eight of us, and we were all in different grades. Mm. There may have been a couple of people who were in the same grade. But we, we, did, we learned from this system called PACE, and basically it was like— um, we, we set our own goals and, and, and went through these booklets and just would go through them and they would progress through the grades. We would even grade ourselves. Right. O- honor system. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. For uh, me, 14 years, that's, that is the bulk of your childhood. Yeah. I mean, and around the time of eighth grade, I begged my parents to let me go to boarding school hmm. uh, because I wanted to have... I wanted to be in a class with other kids my age right. and do all the, you know, play sports and all that kind of stuff. So, so usually we would go 
to boarding school starting ninth uh, to twelfth grade, but I begged my parents and they let me go in eighth grade. You tore up the tennis circuit of Macau. Well, you know, that was not until I was in ninth grade that I started playing tennis, mostly because I had been playing soccer, football, as we called it there. Yeah. And uh, being a British colony. Yeah. And I wanted to be a goalie. So I played goalie, but I'm only like 5'10. And it's not you know, really. So as a kid, you, you thought goalie. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, for whatever reason, I was like, I'm going to be a goalie. And, and that's what I played. I was not, I think I played on like the JVC team. <laughs> not even, and I was not a very good goalie. Huh. You know, because I couldn't get really to the top of the. Oh, it was a stretching thing. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. I, was like, I wasn't really athletic enough to. So. So I was like, mm, no more team sports. I think tennis. Oh, Andre Agassi was playing. Oh, right. Andre the Agassi time. was yeah, playing yeah. around the same time. Yeah. And I became super enamored of his um, mullet and acid wash <laughs> shorts and neon uh, pink tennis shoes. So I, yeah, I picked up tennis racket and started playing and I played right. all throughout high school. I, I was number one MVP and captain of my team. Nice. Yeah. And nice. I had a two-headed backhand. Well, I mean, I have a two-man. As you know, since try, we played tennis together. Try, have, yeah, we did. And you were actually way better than I thought you were going to be. You, you probably could have beaten me. I don't think we ever actually played other no, than just hitting mean, around. No, we were drinking a lot in college. We were just going yeah. to be hitting ground strokes. True, but um, true. yeah. I, I didn't have the mullet in, in college either. It's, I always had a two-handed backhand. It was always the, and it was always been the most natural part of my game, the most natural stroke. My dad was a, was a tennis pro, and so we would play. And he would be, you know, wildly bored. Yeah. But then if I got close, if I started playing a little well, he'd just start wickedly serving ways I couldn't possibly return <laughs> it. And then, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm not going to win. Fine. But It's uh, kind of funny. I mean, that's cool that your dad would actually play with you because when I was growing up, my father was a musician and uh, was an excellent pianist. And he would not teach me how to play because he... Not? He taught my oldest sister, but then he didn't want to teach any of the rest of us because he didn't want to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was so good, you know, it, you know, I never felt bad about it or anything because I eventually did take piano lessons and he was right. Yeah. I wasn't very good. At it. That's a different generation of parenting that we're in now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was always proud of every, everything I did and everything like that, but yeah. he just didn't want to be involved with that. Part of it. We're very much in a different era now. You don't have kids, but no. I think a lot about creative tools and about, you know, I, I want to create a, an environment for my kids to feel like, oh, I want to, I want to write a song. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, here's a piano. Here's a guitar. I'm going to write a song. I want them to feel like there's no barrier to entry to be creative. That's amazing. Well, that's great. You know, and they probably won't become musicians. They probably won't become whatever else. No, they'll that's okay. They'll find their journey, but I, I, I want it to be a natural part of their life. Yeah. Don't tell them that they can't do anything. You well, know? yeah. I mean, like, it, give I them the tools it's to not try special. and do whatever they feel like, you know, might. Yeah. In my opinion, we talk a lot about being silly. And I, I think it's one of the most important things because I am silly. My wife, I, I chose a, a wonderful person and she's silly. And my kids, they're not yet embarrassed of us. But they are cognizant that we're not even weird, but we're silly. It'll happen one day. Oh, no. It's, we're yeah. totally going that way. And I'm going to drive right <laughs> into the mountain. I'm going to go way past. Yeah. Um, because there's no, there's no benefit in not just fully realizing the things that make you happy. 
Yeah. I yeah, you know, I mean that's actually something that I've really been trying to uh dive into a lot more in the last couple of years. A long time ago, I, when I was a photographer and initially wanted to be a conflict photographer and I was over in Israel because the sort of Israel West Bank Gaza is kind of like it's always been kind of like a training ground for conflict photographers because it's kind of it's easy to get to. Luckily, that conflict has been wholly resolved. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's it, there's a never ending opportunity <laughs> there, unfortunately. And you I mean, you wanted to be a conflict photographer and so did kind of, of all of us is the right thing to say. But the group of people who went to school together in Missouri um, yeah. in which you were doing your master's, mm -hmm. we all were very passionate about this documentary life. And we thought the way there was conflict yeah. that seemed to be the path. Well, yeah, I mean, the the photographers that I sort of fell in love with, their work early on were conflict photographers. And the one photographer that my group of friends, which included Nicholas McClellan, you, you know, Stefan Zacklin, other people, Gilles Perez was like the be-all, end-all. Right. We back then had a nickname for him, and I think it was just the Holy Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I was over there trying to follow in those footsteps, but I remember emailing with a friend back at Mizzou talking about all of these things that I was seeing and she wrote back and she's like, you really should learn to take pleasure in the little things in life. And back then I was like, uh, well, that's stupid. No, it, there are much bigger things that I need to be concerned with and all this, you know, stuff. But as I've gotten older, I now recognize the wisdom in, in that taking pleasure in the small things. I mean, it makes for a much more pleasant life. Not only that, I think, I think finding joy in simplicity and in simple daily things yeah. allows us to live more in the moment, which allows us to create in the moment. Yep. So the better we can put aside our own shit and like the way we, like I, I said on the most recent podcast, you know, seven times we're all living in our own bodies. We're all dealing with the things that we're dealing with. And that is that we all have that, but it also, gets in the way of being and doing and creating certainly. And oh, yeah. so, you know, it's a big part of the whole thing. Yeah. But for a long time, I think when, you know, when I was trying to pursue all those, what I thought, you know, the most important things, just the huge, big questions that I was very deep into my own shit and not really enjoying anything. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I was enjoying things, but you know what I mean? Oh, we were I having was, a great time, yeah. but we were also, I mean, I, you know, I was trying to be a, a photographer, or, you know, not even a photographer. I was trying to be a photojournalist, and yeah. it was also by day I was actually a lit major, so it was all like romantic poetry and you know, like Faulkner, and then photojournalism. So, in no way was I not like saying, "Oh, I should, you know, be basically unbathed and you know, oh, yeah. wearing ridiculous clothes." And I, I did that part too, and and it, interesting that you talk about that your your background in lit too. I mean, I have an undergrad in English lit. Right. Before I even went into photography or photojournalism or any of those things. And I actually, once I start, actually, when it was my first internship, I was at the News Sun in Waukegan, Illinois. Yeah, you were. Yeah. And I went to a Northern Short course. I think it was the Northern Short course. Anyways, it was whatever the closest short course was that I could get to. <laughs> and, and, and Chin Chi Chang was there. Right. And our our professor Kim Common. It seems like a made up name now. I know, right? Like 
we just call the Asian guy Chin Chin Chan. Yeah, it sounds terrible, but but that is his name. And he was there and he showed his Chinatown work, which is just insane, yeah. you know? I, can, I mean, I can still see those pictures. Yeah. And that and Kim Kamenich at that short course did a presentation on Joseph Kadelka, And that ruined me basically for the rest of my life. Kadelka did. Yeah, Kadelka and Chin Chi Chang. I was just like, wow, I'm going and taking pictures of a hundred year old woman's birthday or uh, high school football, which are important things. They are. Community journalism, that was all very important. But then I saw this other thing and, and uh, coming back to literature, I made a connection between literature and photography and photojournalism through people like Kadelka and Chin Chi Chang. Because I was looking at that work, which wasn't first day of school, all of those kinds of community record right. pictures that I was doing as an intern. And I was like, wow, there's this bigger thing. It's like writing a book. Right. And here we can mention a mentor that we share and that many of the people who went to school at the same time share in Kim Komenich. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way he ruined and yet also saved all of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I say ruined in a very sort of jocular way, I guess. Right, you know, it right. ruined because it, it made me think of photography and photojournalism as something that, that has much wider ambitions than just daily record being a record keeper. No, he, he opened the door to yeah. the world of photography outside yeah. of the strictly idea of a newspaper or photojournalism. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that has been with me for my entire career and I, and has been, and has actually really helped too in a lot of ways. Kadelka was, was he Czech? I think so. <laughs> I remember him being Czech. Yeah. I just remember his pictures and introduced the fact that, Oh my goodness, you can actually have multiple things going on in a photo at one time rather than just like one thing. You know, the, the whole ball in the air and people right. doing other stuff right. simultaneously, you know, slightly surrealistic, whatever uh, thing that I became obsessed with for the next, you know, two decades. And I was just blown away by that. And I was like, wow, I, this, is, this is the kind of thing that I need to pursue. And also, I mean, you know, the other way in which Kim has touched your life specifically is you've been a, since then, the 20 years, I mean, we're now getting more than 20 years. Yeah. Since then, you've been very passionate about photo books. And that's yeah. something that you and, and your wife are very passionate about collecting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got a ton of photo books. And, 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 and in my present job now, I, I write about photo, photo books also. So, yeah, I mean, I, I people send me photo books to look at and maybe write about and maybe feature and things like that. But, yeah, way more photo books than any other kind of books on my shelves. Right. Your current job, you're a picture editor of the Washington Post. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. you've been you've been there. You've been in the Washington Post for five years now? Yeah, going about? on six. Yeah. Going on six years. Because you moved to Washington about six months after we got here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another weird I don't know what's going on with us, John, but we've kind of followed We're each other just, around too. Yeah, we can't escape each other. Buddy. Yeah, from Missouri to New York to yeah. here. Yeah, you guys in New York well before I did. Yeah, I, I avoided it for as long as I could, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I got sucked into the vortex, which was great because there's a group of us who were very close in college, and the way that's the way it works. It's yeah. not it's not a new story, but having lived away and having been obsessed with all the new early things in my own career, being in in touch but not quite daily then moving to new york and being in the middle of the whole maelstrom of college sort yeah. of stuff again it was uh i mean it was amazing it was, it's fantastic and fun but also like dysfunctional and weird and 
I but, don't know how it all happened, honestly. I mean, I, you know, I never, there, there was never any time in my life where I was like, well, I happened to live in New York. New York was like an accident because friends were living there. You know, the first time I went to New York, I was driving another friend of ours from Missouri to New York to catch a flight back to Bulgaria. Zara. Oh, Zara. Zara sure. I had never been to New York and I was at a bar with him one night in Columbia, Missouri. And he's like, oh, I've got a ticket to go back home to Bulgaria. And I was like, well, how are you getting there? He's like, I don't know. I was like, I'll drive you. <laughs> and he, that, see, that was something that was totally like, I'll drive you. Yeah. It's just I mean, around the block. I had never been to New York. I had never, nothing. So, and then I called my brother up and I was like, hey, you want to, you want to help drive my friend to New York? And we're like, okay. Got to New York. And as soon as I got to New York, I was like, okay, I have to live here. Yeah, I mean, I have I avoided it having been there in my childhood and been yeah. there. Not only am I a lifelong Yankees fan, which it doesn't really have any draw for the city, but it's the. I mean, to me, it's the greatest city. I mean, certainly the greatest city in America, but it's it's my favorite place. Well, it took me many years before I actually lived there, and I was only able to to move there because of our mutual friends. You know, well, first Toshiki Sinway, and then Chad Springer and Bill Bill Carwin. I lived on Bill Carwin and Chad's couch for like three months. <laughs> totally overstayed my visit until Nick and I moved to our uh, place in Williamsburg <laughs> of all places. Yeah, I'll never forget the image solidified in my head of you sleeping in my couch in college. Oh, yeah. At the red couch. Yep. Which later had some spiders. Or <laughs> I, think that was, I don't think it had spiders in it when you had <laughs> you were slept on it, but later did become a spider nest. Uh, yeah. We would probably have just gotten wasted the night before and you would be sleeping with the cover over your head Mm -hmm. and we would just be my, my roommate and close friend, uh, Jason Bissy would be standing over you. And I mean, we would not have been up early. It would be, you know, (laughs) well into late morning. Yeah. Now we're up, we're making coffee. We're sitting there. We'd just both be drinking coffee, standing over you, wondering (laughs) whether or not you're alive or dead. (laughs) I I never met anyone who slept so almost like a Dracula kind of thing. Just so just not going to move single plank. It was, it was impressive. So, so I still do that. And in fact, you'll, you'll, you'll love to know that this morning, actually I got up at six 30 this morning. I get up early now, which is crazy, but I, I got up early this morning, fed the cats, did all the stuff, made coffee and everything came back. Me and my wife were watching a movie in bed. And then I just fell asleep and woke up just a little bit. And my wife was tucking me in, <laughs> tucking all the covers around me in this sort of Dracula fashion and put a pillow over my head because I like things over my head when I'm sleeping. So it, it, nothing's changed as far as that, See, that she, goes. And I got up at one o'clock. She knows you and loves you. you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. That's, that's the, I mean, to be, to be in a relationship with someone who truly sees us and knows and loves it is a, uh, is a very special thing. Yeah, it, it really is. I also love that your wife, Karen, who's fantastic, she has this very interesting relationship to photography. Oh. And I don't want to speak for her, but no, I won't either. But yeah, I'll, but I'll, you know, she she worked with Magnum Photos, which mm-hmm. you know, in our college days would have been like, oh my, oh my god! If we, I mean, we had access to yeah. the person who was in her role. Oh yeah, we, we would have just it would have been terrible. Well, here's the thing about that, which is interesting to me. When I met her, it was kind of back in the very waning heydays of the photo industry in New York. Probably they, they, were, they had probably been waning before wait, I ever wait, got wait, there. Wait, 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 wait. 
Photography waning? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe that's a topic for another discussion or something. Yeah, or we I, can I, talk I, about that in a little bit. But at eyeball, <laughs> things are only rosy. Okay. Uh, no, okay. no, 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 no. We're, well, we're, we're what, happy. What with I what I mean to say was when I actually I think it was the second time I moved to New York. It was back in the days when there were two photo shelters still around. So yeah, it is photo shelter. But then there was another place called Digital Railroad. Right, 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 right. At places where photographers could basically park their archive and then sell without a middleman. Anyways, back in those days, when I first moved to New York, I think it was like 2006 or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Anyways, there were there were there parties every night. Every night. <laughs> yeah. And free booze, like free everything, food, whatever. It's amazing we all got through it because yeah. my wife was in medical, uh, well, she was in residency at the time and so she was working overnight at the hospital every night and so when we i was in new york i was out six nights a week at least yeah and i never bought a drink no you only bought drinks at the bar after you'd already been out to 17 different things exactly i mean exactly one of the clearest memories i have of new york i mean the clearest memory i have is of our daughter being born there and mm. every once in a while we'll be watching something with zella and we'll be there'll be a beautiful shot of central park and we'll Saying, you know, this is where you, this is where you were a baby. Cause every single, I mean, three times a day, she took this amazing stroll yeah. in a carriage through Central Park. Central Park. That was her, that was our backyard. Yeah. But, I remember you were up by Columbus Circle. Yeah. 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 Right there in Lincoln, yeah, Lincoln Center. Yeah. Um, I, I remember being so drunk that I only had two choices getting, once I got off the subway at Columbus Circle, I either could like, stroll really slowly home or sprint somehow my body wouldn't do anything between those two things i could only like it was it was almost like yeah it was like a cartoon and so most of the times i would be too frustrated by going this really slow just like back like shambling home and i would just sprint home from columbus circle home Anyway, those are good days. Yeah, um, but but during but so the way I met my wife was at one of these free parties, and it was a digital railroad party. Yeah, the first night was a digital railroad party. I met her there, and sort of hit it off. I was there with a bunch of other friends too, and there was all this whatever. We were all drinking, got drunk, whatever. And Nicholas McClelland comes over to me and the hags. Yeah, yeah. And she, Karen was getting ready to go home and he comes over to me and he goes, you, you have to walk her to the subway. That's a classic I'm, move. I'm like, what? He's like, you have to walk her to the subway, help her get home. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I walk her to the subway and I'm like, you know, can I get your phone number? I'm, I, I'm a very introverted, <laughs> shy person too. And, and I was just like, can I get your phone number? She gave me her card. And it said Magnum Photos on Oh, but it. you didn't know that? I had no, no. Oh. No, I, I didn't know at all. All the conversation and everything we were having. So that's, that's a real lightning bolt right there. Yeah. And then, and then the next night was like the photo shelter party, which was, I believe it was at Eddie Adams Studio over in like, uh-huh. yeah, the, yeah. What, the bathhouse, I think. is. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Anyways, she was there again. Which was her job. Yeah. 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 And I, the joke we have now is, because at the time I had this horrendous long hair. I can't grow facial hair, but I had not shaved in like three months. So I just looked even worse than it looks right now. 
It doesn't look but, bad right now, buddy. Oh, oh good. Look, I guess I've... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, it looked horrible. <laughs> it was a little and, scraggly. Yeah, it was scraggly. I looked... Yeah. You know, as our friend David Ferre once told me, I look like a homeless B. Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways. I thought about this recently. <laughs> we owe David Ferre, like, each... Oh, yeah. 15,000 drinks. Oh, yeah. At least. Oh, yeah. He's another, uh, you know, throughout the years, I have had the a real close network of friends who have helped me tremendously, you know, like sleeping on your couch. I slept on his couch. I slept on Bill and, you know, I slept on a lot of couches for many years. So at this photo shelter party, Karen, <laughs> we, we pick up the conversation again. And she's like, are you a photographer? I'm like, maybe. I mean, I was like done with this stuff. I had just left Chicago where I had been trying to freelance. I was doing okay, but I was just like, I'm done with this stuff. No, you were doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, I, whatever. I, I, I was done with it and right. moved back to New York, drove back up here. Anyways, so Karen's like, are you a photographer? I'm like, maybe. And she's like, oh. Right. Well. And Karen at the time was the, I think the main artist rep at Magnum. Well, no, she, she was, um, the assistant to Sue Brisk. Who, okay. It was, who, okay. So yeah. she was Sue's right hand woman. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, she's like, well, what kind of photography do you do? And I said, Google me. <laughs> Google me. Yeah. So that, I, that was a lot harder to do at a party then. Yeah. I was just like, Google me. <laughs> and she's like, I work at Magnum. I was like, Oh, I hate Magnum. <laughs> no, no. I mean, yeah. no, I was obsessed with Magnum at that no, time. No, I know, yeah, but yeah. the things you actually love that yeah. in the moment respond with the same, you know. But, you know, that was also at a time she started throwing some photographers' names out. I'm not going to name who they are mm. because at the time, at the time I was also maybe a little critical of. Uh, <laughs> Wait, there was a moment in time where anyone we went to school was, was critical of oh, any other photographer. Right. Well, so she was naming these photographers and I was like, yeah, they're, okay. I mean, they're all average. Right. Yeah. Average. They're okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, are we grading on a curve? <laughs> the, their most recent, recent 25 page story in Newsweek. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Uh, like, yeah, yeah they're, whatever. They're fine. Whatever. <laughs> Google me. Yeah. But I, at, that, at that time, I didn't really want to be a photographer anymore. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that time. Well, then you, you made the, the, the long, slow journey into, well, it wasn't that slow. Photo editing. Into photo editing. Yeah. Which you're still we, doing today. Yeah, which I'm still doing today. And also, I mean, we're connected here too because when right. you started Blue Eyes Magazine and then brought your friends on, you know, because we all had a shared passion I think we, 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 we liked a lot of the same kind of photography right. and we were passionate about putting stuff out there that we didn't see anybody else putting out. Anyways, that sort of, that, that gave me the real sort of entry point into, I mean, I shared my work on Blue Eyes to get my first job at Time working online as a photo editor there. Blue Eyes started, I think it was 2003 we started that and it ran for about that, you know, until 2006, 2007, something like that. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't know at the time, but long form photojournalism was already very difficult to publish. Yeah. And that's the thing we became really in love with at school. Yeah. And trying to figure out how to do photo essays. Like that was clearly the most poetic form we could work in. Yep. And out of that became Blue Eyes. And, you know, I, of course, went to my friends to try to help me express this. And the person who I think over time, 
especially from our friends at Missouri, who was the most passionate and the most particular and the most open hearted about finding new and important photography around the world was you. Hmm. Okay. It was. Well, thank you. You've always been really good about seeing outside of borders. And I think that that speaks to your background and your childhood is that you have no interest in like, okay, photography. We mean Americans, right? You've always been passionate about good photography. You don't care where it comes from. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I think the main criteria for me for what I consider to be good photography is just what hits me. Right. You know, and I think that going to Mizzou gave me a very good foundation. One of the things that I have taken from our time at Mizzou is the thing, one of the things that makes really good photography is emotion. And I mean, I'm all caught up in all kinds of other things too. Stylistic. I love very stylistic and moody things and everything, but all comes back to emotion, whether or not I get an, an emotional response from it. And that doesn't mean, you know, when we were taught, we had all these sort of true emotion assignments where you go take a picture of someone hugging or whatever. Right. Because there's, that's, you know, the building blocks of how we learned about what, what, what that means. But now to me, emotion, it, it doesn't have to be an overt act where someone's touching or anything like that. It well, I think, be, yeah, anyone who's in photography for long enough over time becomes much more passionate about moments between moments. Yeah. That's where we find meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we had been aware enough, that's where we had found meaning from the very beginning. Yeah. Because that, the, the, you know, the climax of a hug, there's, there's really no value there. Sure. Well, it's that first acknowledgement that, yeah. and that you're right. You can be. Yeah. But it's also a very sort of newspaper idea of like what this should look like. Sure. And we were trying to think about these careers that were probably going to not be in newspapers. For the very beginning, our cadre of people in, in at Missouri. We really had aspirations for a bigger idea. And it wasn't that we felt like we'd reserved anything. We just knew that we needed to be more free about how we're going to think about that. I mean, for me, I think it also, it goes back to my background, a, being a child of missionaries who are, you know, missionaries, at least my parents were doing something that was, they had dedicated their lives to doing something much bigger than themselves. I'm not religious and I don't go to to, to church or anything like that. But one of the things that I admire very much about my parents is that they set aside their any kind of personal gain to do something that was bigger than them, that they felt that, that would help the world. Right. They had so, a calling. Yeah. And it was a calling. And I, I mean, I, I don't like using that world word about photojournalism, but in all, I mean, because I think sometimes people can be exploited <laughs> because of that too uh but no you sure and and there's there's a long trail of tears in history of yeah. like the way we've treated people who believed in what they're trying to do and they've, yeah. they've gone down some dark path because of it but i think there's there's an obvious path you've taken that follows in your, your parents footsteps in yeah. that in that direction yeah, in some ways yeah sure and that combined with and I'm sure I, I wanted to study English literature for many of the same reasons, you know, growing up, because it was something that I was passionate about. And literature, to me, speaks to who we are, who I am, where I fit in the world, and reading books and, and experiencing not just books. It also goes into music and it goes into sure, movies sure. and all those yeah. things. But I look for the same thing in all of those different mediums. Is like how... what gives me some kind of feel of 
feeling of connection to being a human and being a part of this world. And emotion, you know, emotional response for me is is probably what connects all of those things yeah, in I mean, a lot of ways. We've we've been friends for long enough that I think we have a pretty good idea of, you know, the history of each other and the way we've changed and the all these other things. I mean yeah. I've always seen you as extremely empathetic and very able to see yourself in other people's shoes. And I think it's why you made you such a good photographer. I, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate that. I've always been sort of self-conscious and thought that I was too self-centered and a jerk. <laughs> well, we're all that also. No, I, I think you, I hear what you're saying. Though. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, that is a big motivation in, 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 uh, a lot of things that I do too to try and to say share somebody else's experience, right? Right. Yeah. But there's a selfish part. I don't know. Maybe it's not selfish, but well, there's, uh, there's it, ego involved no matter what. No, but I mean, what I mean is sharing other people's experience, but those experiences are also my own. Yeah. You're filtering it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're lucky that we went to school to a place that understood, you know, and it's my perspective understood the photographer's role in the transaction like i know that i have ego and selfishness involved in creating this picture but i really think that my job is connecting audience to subject Mm -hmm. and that's very important to me oh absolutely and that i don't know if i would have had that same perspective if i didn't go to a place like missouri where you know you know in, in addition to really good mentors and teachers is you know is where the term photojournalism was literally invented yep coined by angus mcdougall angus mcdougall or, or was it cliff edom i think it might have been cliff edom no it was angus was it angus, I think it was angus. Okay. Yeah. one of them did one of them yeah you know both of them were uh itinerant taiwanese fishermen i had no idea yes yeah. you've been crazy yeah, i went to boarding school in taiwan what's going on here <laughs> i guess it was destiny i always hate when the history of anything we <laughs> can touch is like I bet there were two white guys, huh? Yep. <laughs> well, you know, Henry Luce yep. from Time Magazine. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he was a missionary kid that, or a that missionary or something. I don't know. In China, of yeah. all places, I think. See, I never, that's actually one of the regrets of my career. Uh, I never got to work with, with for life. With what? Life? Yeah, I never got to work for life. Well, life was pretty much gone by the time we hit the scene. I mean, it, 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 it was, was sort pretty much of gone. around, but it was kind of like, an insert like parade, I think, wasn't it? No, no, it was still producing issues. Oh, it was? Yeah. It, it, I mean, I, I'd have to look it up, but I think it closed to stop producing weekly issues. I think it was 2003, 2004. Oh, yeah. Something like that. It went, it went totally online. Hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I always wanted to be a life photographer. I well, mean, yeah. it wasn't the, it wasn't really the photography that was important to me, but I understood it as an icon of American photography and, I don't want to be in a record book. I don't, I, I, you know, over my career, I have become less interested in being witness to history. Mm-hmm. It's not important to me. I, I mean, like, you know, I live in DC. We both live in DC. We actually, we live hilariously close to each other. I know. And, um, <laughs> I, I don't, I've never had a white house press pass. Yeah. I don't want one. Yeah. If I'm in the white house, I better be making some money. Hmm. And I mean, you know, obviously the journalists there are making money, but yeah, I want to come in as think. a freelancer. <laughs> no, not I, for sure that. Well, and, no, I know you know that, but I mean, to viewers, not viewers, but listeners out there, 
yes. might not be making. Who are frustrated by not, some anger. You know, I'm not saying they're you know, living in poverty or anything, but. Well, there's, I mean, there's, some are doing better than others. Let's just say that. Some are doing better than others. Isn't that always the way it goes? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. And I have done the White House thing. Yeah, you have. Much more than I have. Yeah. And I hated it. Um, but I, also loved it. You know, see, I, I, I don't, I only see the absolute insanity of it. I mean, I it own, is insane. Except for the, except for the times when it's completely boring and everyone's on the ground sleeping. No, see, I like the camaraderie of like, oh, this sucks. We're all together. Yeah. But. The idea I'm going to walk into a room for 30 seconds, walk past a thing and take pictures and that's valuable. It's like, fuck you. Yeah. I'm not send a, literally send a fucking monkey to do that. I, I'm not going to do it. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I mean, politics. So that, I mean, that was one of the, one of the bedrocks of, I guess my quote unquote career was my third and last internship I did for us news and world report in 2001, 2001, 2001. Yeah. And that's where I, I mean, because the photographers there, there were three staff photographers there at the time. What's that, Jim? Jim, Jeff, and Charlie. Right. All great photographers. Really good photographers. Who I actually think uh, were woefully underrated out there too, especially Jim. Jim Lascalzo. I mean, all of them, really. I mean, Jeff McMillan was incredible in the studio. I would just go in there and watch him. He could make look, things look like they're floating. I mean, this was no Photoshop. It was all shot on Chrome. We are all, we are also coming from such a totally true ignorant studio yes. background. Yeah, well, technical things were not really that. Emotion was the important thing at Mizzou. Well, no, know, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I think we were competent technically from yeah. like, you know like a available light. But yeah, put a flash in anything from a Mizzou photographer in our era, and I was like, what? What's happening? Yeah, though. So, you know, the tools were also a lot more difficult to work with at the time. Sure. But, but Jeff McMillan was great in the studio. Still, I'm sure great in the studio. Charlie Oshambeau, he was a great, you know, he was the chief photographer. Yep. He just had this, they would, sh- I remember they would love to shoot these contacts, those contacts range finders. And at the time I had a Leica. Of course you did. Yeah. Anyways, those guys, they were all wonderful photographers, but they all pretty much hated to shoot at the White House <laughs> the, or, the grip, or yeah. Capitol Hill. So I did Capitol Hill most of the time. Yeah. And then I didn't have a hard pass into the White House, but, you know, I would go and shoot White House stuff when they were just so sick of it. They didn't want to do it. And, you know, and that's where I got to go into the Oval Office and experience what you're talking about. And, and all that kind of stuff and shot well, alongside Christopher Morris when he was in the early days of doing book. his yeah. uh, My America yeah. and Charles Omani yeah. who was a British guy wearing a pair of um, cowboy boots which you know because he was like he had photographed the bushes in Texas <laughs> for, for a long time it was it was I, you know now that I think about it it was a pretty incredible experience how do you feel about Chris's book I mean we're we're a long time from this. This is kind of, yeah, yeah. this is the, also the end of the blue eyes era. Yep. I don't, did we actually publish? No, we didn't. Cause we wouldn't agree. Okay. Right. Yeah. There was a, there was a kerfuffle. <laughs> there was a, but not with Chris. No, not with Chris. With his gallery. It had nothing to do with which Chris. No, which no longer exists. Which no longer exists. That's how old we are. Yeah. The things we're, we're the things we're still frustrated about no longer fucking exist. Yeah, that's right. I think Chris's book was sort of a good, place to see the shift 
because you know Chris Morris had been a conflict photographer for a decade at least. Yeah, oh, maybe longer. And yeah, now he entered a different stage in his life, had kids, mm-hmm. and needed to come home. Mm-hmm. So did, but the role of the DC based you know Time Magazine photographer was fucking boring. Yeah. So he started to take these other pictures, mm-hmm. and that different perspective led to this book americans we uh my america oh yeah yeah, yeah. i'm my thinking america. of gene richards yeah yeah gene okay. richards americans we so which uh, is also a play on we americans which i think maybe every american family might have had on their co- i know my family had it on their coffee table right. it was a coffee table book yeah there's a reason why they all sound the same yeah that, that was the idea my america it's not i mean it certainly wasn't my favorite i mean i think i i, I won't I won't speak for you. What was the the important place there? I think I I would guess that the photo book in college that was really important to us was probably the smallest one uh, we that had in college. It was one of them. Wasn't wasn't that wasn't, was not wasn't the most Ice, important Vinterese? to me? But it became it. I, that was very very. It was probably top three. Yes. Right. There Vin, was Vinterice. Vinterice. Which I always just call Winterese. Winterese. Yeah. Luke Delahaye. Luke Delahaye. I mean, I, it was so important to me and I spent so much time with it. Yeah. I always assumed it was Wagner that was the reference for like the season. You mean, it sounds right. I, could, I mean, I'd have to Google it. Doesn't matter. Anyway, so uh, French photographer Luke yeah. Delahaye, he goes to Russia, photographs a bunch of domestic violence and alcohol abuse. Yeah. But it's a personal narrative. Yes. And we are in journalism school mm-hmm. and which everything's filtered through like, what is the newspaper going to see yeah. here? And so every day there's like our favorite picture, which is not going to work. Yeah. And then there's, okay, here's, here's the compromise. Here is a wildly first person specific yep. point of view in which pages and pages and pages are just, you know, quote unquote wasted. On here's my view out the window mm-hmm. of a moving train, yeah. blurry into a l- snowy landscape, and it just absolutely floored me. Oh yeah, well, I'll never forget paging. I mean, I owned it, I bought it, I still have it. It's actually in I, storage I, I, somewhere. I but, still the same copy. Yeah, yeah, but not a very well made book, I will say. No, really, it hasn't. It's, I um, I think I stopped binding or something. Through it, po- binding issues. Yeah, yeah. But I'll never forget going through it. And I was blown away by all the exact same things that you're talking about. But the one picture that really threw me for a loop and was just like, oh, my God. The self-portrait in the bathroom. Oh, right. Where he's holding the camera up. And I was like, wait, you can't do that. Right. What is he doing? Right. Like, no, 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 no. So so this brings us, you know, we'll stay in Magnum. (laughs) We'll take the journey from the self-portrait train bathroom picture. Luke Delahaye mm-hmm. down the road to a book which came out after we're in college, but I think was also very important for how I think about the way these things collect together, which is Niagara. Oh, Niagara. I thought you were going to say sleeping by the Mississippi. No, cause that wasn't important to me. No, me either. I, in fact, to this day, I, 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 I won't say I can't stand that book. Um, because that's not true. I mean, I, I admire, I think parts that's, of it. that's the word I would use. I admire. Yeah. It's, it's not a, um, it's not a book. It's a portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. 
I mean, that's what put him on the map at Santa Fe, Review Santa Fe. If you and, look, I, I mean, mean, if we looked at the book now, though, and, you know, maybe, maybe it'd be fun to come over another time and just literally pour through a, a very famous book yeah. and talk about it because, I mean, you know, with, with great respect and love. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. This is hard and we love photography mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we realize how hard it is. But some of the stuff that happens in, in these books and whatever, you're like, Oh, good Lord. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, uh, when we were talking earlier and I started saying politics, politics, politics about a lot of stuff that I don't want to talk about on air. <laughs> yeah. No, and this is not what the, this is not the place yeah. for that. Oh yeah. No, I know. But I'm just saying that that comes into play. In, but, but I agree with you. Like Niagara is the one book. There are two books by Alex Soth that reverberate with me, resonate with me. That and Dog Days Pagoda. Yeah. Those are the two that really resonate with me. Dog Days Pagoda, he did, or Bogota. I'm sorry I, for butchering. I like Bogota's better. Yeah, Bogota. <laughs> it feels like we're in like Harlem uh, or something. I mean, he did, he did that in, in at a time when he was, he and his wife were off. That was a, on a on a journey of adopting his child. Was that earlier? Was that earlier work published later? Man, I don't. I am. I'm not I sure remember. about that. I'm not sure about that. But Niagara, to me, I remember talking to a mutual friend of ours who also worked on Blue Blue Eyes with us. It was Chris Vivian at the time talking like it was on. I don't know what was that early early version of Skype, but it was on on Max. I don't know. Whatever the chat thing is that we used to use, and I was chatting to him, I was talking to him about Niagara, and I was like, Niagara to me was like a David Lynch movie Mm -hmm. in book form. He's like, yes, oh, I mean, I don't know if he would agree now, but I remember him agreeing. No, Chris has a lot of conviction. I I bet he would still one hundred percent back up what he said. Yeah, but that book to me, like, it it seemed more personal than it was was a beautiful book. He was delving into all these things about love and relationships and all this stuff. Yeah. That I didn't see in Sleeping by the Mississippi. No, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a totally different document. Yeah. Right? So it's a, also, it's an era specific book too, because there's a lot of homosexuality involved yep. kind of things. And there's a lot of different class things happening there. So, you know, it, it is of a certain era and it had a real, a real power. Yeah. My point with the self portrait okay. thing was oh right <laughs> i know you're talking now i know where you're going with this now. right fantastic <laughs> book i love this book it's and really it special surprising why is this fucking dick in I there just for no reason I don't now know. <laughs> you know you could say it's only fair you know everyone else is you know, well, cool i'm with it uh-huh. but then why do i have to see it you know <laughs> yeah or, that you know, is a very different self-portrait than luke's in <laughs> Winterese. A little bit. Winterese. I would say a little bit. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I quite. like that. I like that uh, that journey that we just took there. That it was, was fun. fun. Yeah. Yeah. I don't spend as much time thinking about those connections between yeah, books and You anymore. know, what's funny is that I don't think I have all that many people that I could even have that conversation with either. They're out there. They're, they, they are. I know. But this is what we... You this can, is... You know, for those listening, this is us 20 years ago. Oh, 100%. Yeah. We, we were just so, so deep. In yeah. It. You could have this conversation any day, today, yesterday, tomorrow with uh, Melissa Little. Oh, yeah. He's a huge collector. Yeah. 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 I, has- you know, I've known Miss L- Melissa Little since photo a day days, but only online. 
And it was just like, I can't even remember when was the last, the last time I saw you was like at that bar. <laughs> was it during photo geek week or it was no national geographic oh, seminar? Right. Yeah. It was, the, it was a long time ago. Night. Yeah. It was right after I got married. Right. It was like a couple of months after I got married. Yeah. Um, and that was the first time I met Melissa. So I was. It was amazing. You got that far into it. That was the first time I ever met her in, in person. And she gave me the warmest, nicest she's, hug. She's lovely. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. I mean, I've always been a fan of hers for, you know, she worked with this one with blue eyes yeah. there for a little while as yeah, well. But I've always really held her in very high esteem. So it's very cool to know that I could have the same conversation with her about. There's a reason why it's called Geek Fest. Yeah. Um, you know, she she really cares and really is passionate about these things. And that has an amazing collection. Much, much more impressive than my collection. Probably way more impressive than mine, too. I mean, there was a time when I was trying to buy like one a, one a month. But then, you know, I much. get older and I've got to go to the doctor. More <laughs> <and stuff>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, isn't that the truth? But that also is because I'm married too. As my wife is like, now if you're if you feel sick for more than two days, you have to go to the doctor. Now I'm like, okay, that's a that's a good rule. That is a good rule. And and I said, okay, well, the same applies to you too. And right. Like, okay, fine. So now in fact, we were both at the ENT together yesterday. So yeah, we're we're sticking to that rule. Accidentally. Accidentally. Interesting. Accidentally. <laughs> um, no, your friends approve of your wife's interventions in that sense. I wanted to ask you though. Because we're talking about these arcs of our careers. Yeah. And we're talking about the history going back to Missouri. And there's lots more to be said about that. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we could really get really deep in here and bore the living shit of everyone I'm who's sure. listening. You know, if we could see a tally of the people listening, we would have seen them dropping out. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you about this journey you've taken to become a photo editor and about the qualities you, you see as being important to being a good photo editor. Because it's, you know, though I did some of that work and at blue eyes mm -hmm. i also to me it was almost more of a, as a photo coach because we were only publishing a very specific thing we published some portfolios i mean we published mike brown's portfolio early on yeah thomas munita too oh, i was going to ask you what's going on with thomas munita since you are the most likely i to mean know you know he, he over the last few years he shot a lot from the new york times still yeah, I, I honestly can't tell you right now because my role has changed now. So right. I'm, I'm not as attuned into the assignment world, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. I'm more attuned to like projects and books and things like that. Sure. <clears throat> but I also follow him on Instagram. Cool. And uh, he's I should. Been, I don't think I even do. Yeah, he's he's I mean, he's out in the streets in, in Chile, in Santiago, uh, photographing the protests there. And he is just as talented as he Maybe he's more. A, he's a than tireless, maybe. brilliant photographer. Yeah, he's. He, I think he's a great photographer, and he's got a specific. <clears throat> you know, he has his own vision and look. Thank God. He's a. a you know, some photographer. Some people out there call it authorship. Authorship. You know. Yeah. yeah. It's a, a point of view. Yeah. Authorship. Personal vision. Yeah, you can tell. At least I can usually tell a Thomas Manita picture. Now there are a lot of people, you know, as people do start toning and pictures like he did, you know, so now it's right. a little bit more difficult sometimes because well, you're like, yeah. I think that's Thomas Medita, but now it's somebody else. Could be an acolyte. Could be from the studio of. Yeah. 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 But I mean, how do you, how do you see that role? I mean, cause from the outside, certainly I have favorite photo editors and I, I, mm -hmm. you know, there are things I believe in and things I, I care about in terms of working with photo editors, but. Having done this now for a long time, because you know you were at Time, 
you were at MSN. Yeah. <laughs> you were at, you're at the Washington Post for now mm-hmm. these five, six years. Yeah. You know, you've had this now long experience mm-hmm. in photo editing. What to you now strikes you as the important tools or skills or role that a photographer can play, especially as we might be on the edge of a changing publishing universe? Well, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for. No, I, I actually, I want you to speak in the <laughs> person of them. I, I mean, I, in a lot of ways, uh, I, nothing's really changed for me other than my, my number one mission is to make sure that I advocate and get the best work that I can out there in front of people's eyes. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. Have things changed because the, you know, online versus print. Yeah, I think so. I will say that there are some people have a misconception of what might do really well digitally versus in print. And I don't think those things are always true. Like, you know, for example, I'll just well, wild, stupid example. Cats always go viral. Well, not true. And that's, I, that's coming from a cat person. That's coming from a cat person. And it's also coming from someone who tried to do the cats always go viral thing and it didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, honestly, I, I've, I, I have actually tried that route, but what, you know, people really engage with good work and what is good work? That is a very subjective thing too, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the two of us could, I will just say from my experience, that I have in my role at the post, I have published things that I have thought were going to go really do really well, like cats or whatever. And then things that were maybe I didn't think was going to be that big of a thing, but that people really responded to. And I will give an example right now. I can give you an example. Like we were talking about earlier, earlier this year, I published James Whitlow Delano's work on mining in the mountains of Peru. And I thought, Hey, I've been a fan of James Whitlow Delano's work. I'm not even sure I'm, if I'm saying his name right, so I apologize, James, uh, if I'm not. But <clears throat> I have been a fan of his work for a long time, and was you know, and got the opportunity to work with him and put that work up there, and it really, you know, people, it really resonated with people. And it's not cats. It's not North Korea. It's not prostitutes. Or, you know, a lot of things that sort of a lot of people think might go viral or do really well. Anyways, I'm just trying to make the point that that was really good work Mm -hmm. and people really responded to it. Right. I think I think advocacy isn't really important thing. And advocacy comes from a deep connection to photography and understanding and a and a focus on what is important to the particular photographer in photography. You know, I, I, I talked a little bit previously about your empathy and photography and photo editing i think that is a big part of what makes you such a good photo editor but is there something you can point out that photo editors could be doing more of or better at oh man i don't want to even take a stab at that <laughs> <laughs> really i mean i will say it in general terms what i think makes a good photo editor which i think it might have been your original question and then i skirted around it or something but what I think makes a good photo editor is someone who, first of all, is just naturally curious about the world. You know, I mean, I think that's what makes a good journalist, too, right? Part right. of what makes a good journalist is: Are you curious about the world? Are you curious about what makes the world, what, wh- why things happen the way they happen in the world? And then, as a photo editor, also knowing who's out there working on those things, just knowing the history of photojournalism, who was doing what, when, who's doing what now. 
those things are very important. I don't know if that answers the question. I don't think there is there is an answer to any of the questions okay. I ask. Okay. No. Uh, and oftentimes the questions are so confusing people can't. Uh, every job that I have ever heard it is people always talk about problem solving. And I think that's a big that's a big thing in any job but also with photo photo editing too. I think yeah, be, I think it's a very important job in yeah. editorial photography on my side as well. I mean, you yeah. know, I I am often tasked with creating a very powerful image from some ingredients in a kitchen, which doesn't really have the freshest ingredients on hand. Yeah. So, you know, in a very short time, we're going to need to find some, you know, we're going to need to find something that tastes good. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm using some metaphors that the uh, British photographer, Chris Floyd recently shared with me, but something that I've been struck with recently, and I, I'll only bring this up because we're in a very topical show. Sure. Um, having some very special feelings. One of my recent special feelings is that editorially speaking in major magazines, I'm seeing a lot of fashion photographers take are being assigned portrait assignments. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with any photographer being challenged with any assignment. I think that's fantastic. I mean, that's what's right. exciting about photography. Right. But I worry that perhaps the trend I'm seeing short term is that People are very concerned about the way people are looking and they want to have people who are best at capturing the best possible side of people. And that to me is a real frustrating idea about what the job is of, especially an editorial photographer, because my job as a portrait photographer is not to make people look good. Yeah. Oftentimes the only images I'll take that might get published are the people are the ones in which people look the best, mm. but that's not, that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to tell a story. I'm trying to connect yeah. some dots. Yeah. So I'm excited for portrait photographers to have better opportunities. And there are a lot of great portrait photographers who are, will be challenged to work in an editorial environment and will rise to that challenge. Mm -hmm. But in general, I don't see a real deep seated need for advertising commercial photographers to have a better inroads into editorial photography because this is not what they do. Yeah. I want to be challenged. Mm-hmm visually as a audience member. I want more questions to be offered to me than yeah, to be answered. I agree with that. Yeah. Often I don't usually, I wouldn't put advertising and fashion photographers in the camp of people who are going to be challenging me. Now, maybe stylistically they could be challenging. Yeah. But I'm concerned when photo editors who I've been connected to over the years now are hiring a lot of, fashion photographers i hear what you say because it makes me think that it's just another way the industry's sliding towards a a less interesting place yeah just speaking for myself i feel like over the last few years you know i don't want to necessarily blame it on social media <laughs> but i think it, that's played a role in homogenizing things Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to control how people see them. You know, I have heard that there are, you know, young people on, on Instagram will delete things <laughs> that don't make them look good. They only want, right. to, you know, so I would, since I don't work in that realm no, that it, you're talking it, about. What I'm saying is totally unsurprising. Right? No, no, no. But, but, but it reminds me of actually something I ironically saw on Instagram, I think. And it was a quote by Joni Mitchell, who I don't think I've ever even listened. I probably have heard her music, but sure. 
but he said the music industry is only interested in signing people or promoting people who are willing to be shaped, not necessarily people who have talent. And so that's why she doesn't really do music and stays at home and paints now. Right. I mean, she has the luxury of doing that, but I don't know that that's sort of my answer to that. that Luckily the art world is totally devoid of those problems. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, it's one of those things where I'm probably seeing a very narrow perspective on it because I'm not engaging with the whole thing. There are also a lot of editorial photographers who I love who shoot fashion. Yeah. So, you know, that that line is much more blurred than just being a very clean thing. Yeah. And there was also that whole time period where there was a very, very prominent photo editor in New York who started cross assigning people. War photographers to do fashion and fashion photographers to do war. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But, and I think that's. And that's carried over a lot. <laughs> and it's always, sometime has confounded me a little bit. Sometimes I think it works very, pretty well. You know, like when the big fashion issues that used to come out. Right. And then uh, all the like cool, you were like the cool photographer if you got to shoot it. Yeah. Like Paolo Pellegrin did one. The, like the, act, the Hollywood actors. Well, there um, was that too. That was another one. Yeah. But there was also like New York Fashion Week. At one point that became like oh, the right. thing that like if the you did it. portfolio of fashion. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I did it myself, but not for anyone really, but just myself <laughs> to, to prove to myself that I could do it. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll we'll eventually get Landon Land Nordeman onto this podcast, our buddy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he I, I know, I know he has at least done dog shows. He's done the whole dog and pony show at this point. He's done all. No, but I mean, he did like the New York, the big New York Westminster. Oh, he's a. Oh, you you've been you you haven't been paying attention. I haven't. I'm sorry. Landon is a very prominent fashion photographer. Really? Oh, very much so. Congratulations, Landon. He's been doing great work. Um, and he's been doing. He's been. The truth is, I don't know a whole lot about fashion photography. It's not. It's not the. Neither do I. No, it's not. It's not the place I work in, and it's not my background. So. There's huge gaps here in terms of what I understand, but he has been doing a ton of work starting from sort of what you're talking about, sort of the fashion week portfolio kind of thing that led into years and years and years of doing very fashion heaven work. Uh, And it's been fantastic. Really, really good work. I mean, that's one of the things I think since I have moved into the newspaper world, like five or six years ago, I have not been paying as much of attention as what has been happening in the magazine world as I used to, because when I was in, was in the magazine world or when I was a freelance photographer, I was, I think I was even more attuned to what people were doing because I felt everyone was a competitor or something like that. And I was like, was Oh, yeah. you know, we, we used to have these discussions even back at Mizzou. It's like, oh, I could do better than that. Well, but, that's how things start, right? There's, there's the seeing what was published and saying like, oh, well, come on. <clears throat> I, 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 can, I know I can do that. And that's an important because that yeah, starts yeah. the role of like, listen, I think I can do this job. Mm-hmm. Now, what you 100% don't understand at the time was the dynamics and variables involved with that particular job. Exactly. Very possibly there was really good work created, but yeah. they couldn't use it for seven yep. different reasons. I 100% agree with you. And that's why I never, if I see something published in print, I will never actually, uh, 99.9% of the time, I will never judge anybody by what I see in print. I won't look at it and be like, oh, well, they must be terrible. 
because in parentheses exactly after that, what you said. It, it, judging what on a podcast, which I, I think is important. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a vast world. We d- we can never know the circumstances in which art is created. Yeah, and so that that's a part of it. Anyone but for has, you, you're 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 talking about from your perspective, and like like how do you navigate this world where you're seeing a different kind of photographer being assigned to do other you know work that would have been done by other people right it's something that at least you want to be aware of yeah is this a new trend yeah is this a new thing and is it you know i i don't chase trends oh no no it's something i want to be aware of what's happening sure because um it speaks to larger the larger undertones of what's happening in the publishing industry Mm. and I might not be able to affect much, but I at least want to kind of understand which way the boat's leaning. Yeah. You know what? I think that everyone would like to know which way the boat is leaning. And I think if I knew that, I'd probably, man, I don't know. I'd have a really big house. Super big house. <laughs> at least one yacht. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what What are you seeing now? What are you, what are you seeing in print or online that is... Well, you know, for a while, I've, I've really started, I've really been paying attention to a lot of stuff coming out of the Scandinavian region. Hmm. Fjords and such? Inadvertently, I don't, I mean, I, I actually haven't necessarily been looking for it on my own. But yeah, I mean, like, even there was an editor at work, not a photo editor, but one of the other, actually one of the top editors had, had mentioned to one of the, our photo editors. Oh, well, Kenneth really likes to do these things about Norway and stuff. And I was like, really I do. And then actually it turns out that I've done several things about Norwegian photographers or Swedish photographers. So that's the new (laughs) thing. Actually tomorrow, I don't know when this is going to go live, but tomorrow I'm actually publishing another thing on a, by a Swedish photographer. And it's, it's very moody cinematic work, which I gravitate towards. Too, but that's another way that I see emotion being manifest in in photography. Too. Not necessarily overtly, but also the, the way that the photo is approached or executed right. as well. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I would say that really is what I, the new stuff that I am seeing is mostly coming out of Scandinavia. So is that is that replacing the sort of Dutch wave we saw 10, 15 years ago? You mean Danish? I meant Danish. Yeah, the Danish. I think it's on the heels of that, honestly. I think it's, there's probably, probably someone with much better knowledge of what's going on in those countries would be able to, to answer that. Because I remember a couple of years ago, I was on some forum somewhere and someone had said, and there was some, they were talking about a Finnish photographer and they're like, well, if you understood the background and history of Finnish photography, you would know. And I'm like, oh. I, I, yeah, okay. I don't, I, I personally do not understand the history of yeah. Finnish photography. I, I don't, I don't either. I could tell you maybe two Finnish photographers and that's about it. Oh, I don't think I would act, maybe I could accidentally. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are way more than that. I'm not dissing Finnish photography. I like Finnish photography. But. I, no, see, I, this, I am dissing Finnish <laughs> photography. That's interesting. Scandinavian photography. I, I feel like everything I buy is Scandinavian now. Really? I'm a big Swedish kick. Volvo, Hasselblad. Yeah, the photographer I'm publishing tomorrow is Swedish. Uh-huh. And his book is called Smoke, and it's very good. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Smoke is very important in Sweden. Is it? 
Yeah. Oh, smoked things. Yes. Huh. Smoked things, but also smoke. Yes. Yeah, so there's a restaurant in Stockholm in which the chef, um, I think it's called Eichstadt, they only cook over an, over an open fire. Huh. Everything in the entire restaurant is only cooked with fire, with smoke. There's no, there's no oven. There's no range. Huh. Only fire. So you walk in. I feel like I may have seen this chef on some show. He cooks by the water. Oh, no, no. You're, <laughs> another one? Yeah, you're thinking. But Pat- the, he's got a restaurant, but it's like. No, you're thinking the Patagonian uh, chef with a beret. No, um, no, no, no. This is another guy. And, and, sure? and, and there was one episode where he goes into the mountains and cooks on a, on a campfire. It was on one of those, yeah, one of those, one of those mind of a chef. He was, he was like one of the mind of a chef chefs. <laughs> well, there's a Brazilian guy who I think is, I actually think, is, I hate to talk about this right now because I think some of them are really important. Yeah, and I'll, I can't remember their names. Mm. Well, then um, let's not talk about. It. <laughs> uh, but you're right. Smoke is important. Smoke is important in uh, in Sweden and and Norway's. Probably my favorite country to go to. Right I've now. never been, and I have a bunch of Norwegian friends. And I even went to school in in Taiwan at a boarding school with a bunch of Norwegian and really? Finnish students. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My my high school was very international. I would say mm-hmm. people from all over the place. That's a long trip from Norway to They're, Taiwan. You know, missionary kids. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. There's no distance too far for Jesus. Nope, or to proselytize. That's right. Go forth into the world. Go something. forth There's into the world. Bible verse that says that. There probably is. Yeah. I was. This reminds me today. I was. I wanted to take a break, and I remembered there was something I was watching on Amazon Prime, but I didn't remember what it was. So I turned Amazon Prime, and I couldn't figure out what I was watching because it's all, you know, if I am watching ten minutes of something, it gets absorbed back into the kid universe. Oh, so, so, never so you out, can't go back to the resume what you were watching. I can't ever thing. figure out what it was because yeah. it gets just sucked into whatever my kids have been watching. Yeah, Netflix is better because they have profiles. And so mm-hmm. you make your kids use, if they can, you can make them use the profile, then it's not, you know, your stuff's not so sullied. But yeah. So instead I, I put on, the first thing I saw was Dinner for Schmucks. Oh, I haven't seen that. It's, I don't think you can make that movie now. Yeah. It's probably it's of its those. era. It's brutal. It is, it's, brutal and steve carell plays a guy who makes art out of dead mice basically (laughs) and um he has one of the things he shows to uh paul rudd is the last supper no no and he has um he's like oh you might you might recognize this this person and he's holding up like a mice jesus (laughs) and paul rudd's like yeah yeah he's like here's a hint he wrote the bible and I was like, well, he didn't quite write the Bible, but okay, that's a, maybe a bridge too far for oh, this particular movie. That's hilarious. Yes, my wife and my Netflix profile are wildly different. What's, what's Karen into? She's into shows about like supernatural stuff. Like, oh, really? Like Supernatural, the show, about anything like that. Like, I, I, I get them all mixed up, uh, mixed up in my head because they're all kind of, to me, interchangeable, not, but not really, you know, but there's no, this is the problem with fantasy yeah. stuff. Like I've read a lot of fantasy series and I can't keep them separate. So there's a couple of them that I've read again. Or oh, I, I've, inadvertently. Some of them. Yes. I literally can't remember what happens so I can read them <laughs> again. I also, I don't, I'm, I think I'm somewhat unusual. I don't, 
I don't really mind reading things again. Well, I like reading things. I mean, I, Huruki Murakami. I've probably read right. several of his things like a million times. Right. But there's, there, some, there's stuff, some people I can't reread. No, for sure. Yeah. Fantasy, to me, I have a license to reread it because the writing is not particularly important. Yeah. So it's story. just story and, uh, and world. So occasionally I want to just reinvest myself in that world. I may be skipping around a little bit, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, things that are very writerly, I might not be able to go back to. She watches the supernatural stuff. And then if you log into my profile, it's like midnight diner, Tokyo of stories, you know, neon Genesis Evangelion, you know, like what? I don't know what that is. It's a, it's an anime show from the 1990s. Oh, there you go. And it's bonkers. Well, you, you said anime show from the 1990s. It's not for children. Not for children. <laughs> no. <laughs> children don't watch it. No. Don't watch it. Sounds like it's a it's like a octopus porn sort of tension. No, not really. It's it's actually this uh show about this kid who Isn't it weird we we imbue children with supernatural powers? It is. But he doesn't really have supernatural. They're never he, like he, I guess he kind of does because he's basically like the chosen person to save the world right. from these robot demons that come right. out of the sky and then right. he gets into this like right. big suit thing to but then the whole series is about his confusion about why he is chosen so it's it's like the last three episodes it's like it's like Tarkovsky really which is right. really bizarre it's like 2001 a space odyssey it goes into this like weird things become rough sketches on white backgrounds and stuff and I'm just like what is going on here That's this is a yeah, it, yeah, it's. I would. Rec- it's twenty six episodes. Yeah, it's good. my my kids are watching this Amazon Prime original. I think it's an original Amazon Prime show, but it's basically the last or uh, when 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 so I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. When something, it's exactly the same thing. Air jammer or air? Oh, air something. Air shaper. The last air something. Airbender. Airbender. Okay, last so airbender. it's the last Airbender, but not with a sword. And I'm watching it. It's like. You rat bastards. Like, this is just so clearly that. <laughs> just remake that. There's just no reason not to. Speaking That's, of animated things, I recently started watching Big Mouth. Have you watched that? I oh, haven't. Good Lord. But see, I love Also, Nick- not for children. Well, but it is for children now. No. It's like, no, no, no. Big but Mouth? It's, it's hugely popular in middle and high school. Ooh, okay. I mean, it's all no, about no, no. puberty so, and growing I, up I and sexuality. And it's, and it's, and it's hardcore. It is hardcore. I love Nick Roll. Yeah. Huge Nick Roll fan. I listened to him on a bunch of podcasts talking about it, and the podcast host inevitably has a teenage son, mm-hmm. and they're obsessed with Big Mouth. Like, if you don't watch Big Mouth, you're an outcast. Oh, man, I tell you what, though. It, it captures being an adolescent boy. That's probably why I haven't very watched it. well. like, I don't. I don't need to access those feelings. I'll, I'll let those people. No, I mean, I'm 46 and I'm looking at it now. I'm like, wow, this, okay. That is what being, I bet it's good information though. I, I, yeah, actually. Cause and we had, I had like, I've only seen like four episodes of it. I haven't seen the whole thing, well, but there's, I, a, there's a few seasons now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's actually, there's a lot of inclusiveness in it. Like there's one character who thinks he might be gay and goes through this whole thing and it's all fine and great, which is wonderful, I think. And, you know, it talks about girls' sexuality too. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I'm not giving it like stamp of approval. This is the greatest thing for all kids to watch or anything, but it, it's, it's, I mean, it's hilarious and it, it's educational. I think ultimately it's playing a good role because it's actually dealing with it yeah. in a way that's not like, you know, I, I remember Skinamax with like band uh, yeah, yeah, actually yeah. get the channel. It's like, Oh, I think I see boobs. <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. Like, yeah. Oh, don't worry. I know what's, I know what's going to happen. Well, that's in big mouth. It, it, it addresses those issues. <laughs> No, I'm sure it does, but <laughs> no, it also but in a very in a, like like you know, I remember that too. Yeah, when I was a kid, and it's like we didn't have we had the cable box, but we didn't get really get get cable. It's like I'd try and like tune it like the little UHF. <laughs> no, like it's like two in the morning. You're like oh, my like, oh, the, yeah. oh wow, and it's like I don't know. I mean, it's not a porno. It's no just an R-rated movie that has no, some, yeah. right. Well, and but those that, they were a little racy later on that era that movie, night. like yeah. you know, like that sort of like Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, there are a couple. There's some boobs. Oh, there are. Yeah. Thank God, man. I don't think you could make Revenge of the Nerds now either. No way. No way. No. No. <laughs> Which is not bad, but also no. not good. I feel pretty ambivalent about it. You know. I think that the sensitivities towards people is important, but also we're losing our sense of humor. Well, yeah, that's probably true. And that's the real shame. Cause I, I mean, I, I love comedy. So yeah, but like, again, you know, big mouth, I think does a good job of showing all of it in a very hilarious way. Right. And I think they're actually they're listening to <laughs> Nick Roll talking and they really tried to expand the idea of like, you know, who's involved in season two, which is important because, yeah kids are able to see themselves on tv you know however they identify you know this this you know this these ages answer i mean that's that's impactful speaking of these kinds of shows have you seen not to get way off topic or anything but actually this show visually is is very stunning to me uh euphoria i haven't seen it on hbo no. It got a lot of bad press early on, and then I I started watching it, and I was like, well, first of all, I mean, it's supposed to be a teen show about what it's like to grow up as a teen now, but it's told through a very unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. a drug addict, basically, who has the the show starts off with the main character Zendaya, but I don't know who she, can't remember her name in the actual show is coming home oh, from okay. rehab. The, the girl from Spider Man, I guess I don't know. She's the she's Mary Jane in Spider Man. I haven't seen that. I don't watch HBO series, but I do watch <laughs> Spider Man. I haven't seen Spider Man since probably I, Peter, uh, since Tobey Maguire. Yeah. Anyways, Euphoria though. I mean, it. She's the like this main character who comes back. She's in high school, but she's been through rehab. And then the rest of the series basically is kind of told through her lens. And at the end, all this crazy stuff happens, and you're kind of like, "What just happened?" And I, I think that the whole series was told through her unreliable perspective right. as an addict. I like that. Cause I like the idea. <clears throat> and we, I was talking about this recently on pod. I like the idea that we don't know what's going to happen and that our expectations are faulty. The architecture, which we built our idea of, of the world is faulty and that we're left with having to deal with what happens next because, you know, we're living in a time in the world in which, you don't need to have a unique experience at all if you don't choose to. You can, there's not a restaurant you can ever go to that you can also get a walk through. Not only the menu, but the space. Pretty much every door you open, you kind of have an idea if you want to know what's on the other side of it. Hmm. And I think it's a dangerous way to live. 
world. I'm much more interested in the world in which is about exploration and curiosity, which if you don't know what's on the side of the door, you're probably gonna be more open hearted about what you might find. Mm. And you know, there's that, do you remember the old David Sedaris thing uh, that he published years and years and years ago when he, I think first moved to Paris and he was talking about overhearing this conversation between these kids who are from Houston about which place is better, Houston or Paris. <laughs> and all the ways in which they, of course, were going to rate Houston much higher were the most sad, terrible ways in which Paris is the most special place you could go to or, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It really spoke about why we do and don't travel. And people, my, my dad and stepmom, they have no real interest in going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Because whether they do or don't, think this way it feels to me like they already feel like they can access whatever they want to go from where they are i see what you're saying and that's not true at all it's one thousand percent not true yeah it's the goodwill hunting paradigm of like you know Mm. of him saying you might know about michelangelo and his art and his politics and his sexuality but you don't know what the sistine chapel smells like yeah we go into the world to understand who we are yeah and to push against the borders of what that might mean like I can't imagine having gone to college to a place where I knew anyone. I was mm. it wasn't my choice precisely to go to a school where I literally had no I didn't know a single person from my high school because it was I mean no one from Tallahassee yeah. went to Missouri other than me. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine my life now having gone to a place where I didn't have that experience where I was seeking in others places to connect. Yeah. And places where we were way more alike and dissimilar. I mean, I think that you just summed up why, why am I in journalism? That's it. Right. In a lot of ways, that's it right there. Question. This is a goofy way to say it, but you know, what was it? The unexamined life is not worth living. Right. Right. You know, I mean, I don't know if that's hundred percent true, but no, that's what we're out there doing. Like you were saying, bumping around and pushing boundaries and figuring out who we are in the world and, and other people too. Yeah. Getting deep on this bitch. Yeah, very deep. <laughs> very deep. But yeah, I mean, and I, I'm, the, I'm the only one drinking. So, you know, you just, you just are deep. <laughs> I just had to, had a, you know, a glass of whiskey to get there. Yeah. Well, I don't really drink much anymore. I used to drink a lot. Well, God bless you for it. Yeah. No, it's a, uh, doctor you know sodium too much sodium and other things in well my, yeah, in but my... it's, it's not even about that though it's not that it's not like you're missing the idea of what it's like to drink oh no 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 yeah i'm just saying that, that like i like my ear problems might have some like yeah, like i only drink one cup of coffee a day now oh too. yeah so it's like not so much because i want to but i'm being told well to, we're, we're, but you know, i'm complying Compl- and I'm happy about it. Compliance, yeah. And it's not a bad thing. We're down from 27 when we were in college. 27 <laughs> a day. Yeah, we were very well, overcaffeinated. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to drink. Oh, and my wife now works at a coffee shop. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, is a wonderful place for her to work. It pays her very well. And she has health insurance, which That's- is more than I can say for some of the places that I've worked in the publishing industry. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> to me, you know, a couple of years ago, I gave up uh, beef for about a year. Yeah, I've been, I've, I'm, I'm on that route. Well, I, I could easily do it again. Yeah. Because ultimately, the reason why I gave it up because I was in Sweden. 
And okay. I, was, I was in Sweden with Back Scott Pryor. Right. And we were having this Kobe beef steak at this restaurant in Gothenburg. And we were having this exquisite meal with this great wine and this perfect steak. I had a bite of it. And I was like, yep, I'm done. Really? Because it was a distillation of exactly why I like steak. Uh-huh. And I've had, I've had, all, I've had great steak. I've, and, you know, I've made great steak. And I tell my kids all the time, enough is the same as plenty. Hmm. I artistically want to seek out new experiences. Mm-hmm. culinarily i don't need to have any more hamburgers or steak or whatever else especially knowing how terrible it is for the global environment yeah that's what i thought it was is uh, i mean that's one big reason why i'd like to give up beef it's just terrible for the planet it's terrible for the planet it's terrible for the cows right of course and so, you know so is that is my personally giving that up gonna matter no but you know you had several hundred thousand to it and start slightly moving the needle. Yeah. So personally, I was just like, okay, I got to experience this incredible steak Mm -hmm. and that's a great place to say, great. Yeah. It's like going out on top. It's like going on top. Yeah. The thing that happened though, is that my kids got to an age where they, they previously did not like hamburgers. They just didn't like it. Now they talk, almost daily about wanting and loving juicy hamburgers. <laughs> they don't ever say hamburgers. Not no. just a, not just a hamburger, uh, a juicy they hamburger. They only ever say juicy hamburgers. So they need to go to what was the place called five napkins? They've well, they of course have never been to five napkins, <laughs> but they only have only ever talk about juicy hamburgers. That's the only option. And my son is convinced that the only way to get a juicy hamburgers is to put beans on it. <laughs> That's what makes the hamburger juicy. So your son's British. Um, he's not not British. I'll say that. Because <laughs> when I I studied for one term at Oxford University when I was in in undergrad to studying literature, and when I was over there, I just remember just about every fast food place, like you know, Wendy's or whatever, you could get baked beans on the hamburger. on the burger, and I was just very like, juicy burger. It's very juicy. But I was like, what? Baked beans? Like, that's the only place I've ever heard of baked beans. Well, it's just a bad idea. Ah. Maybe if you mush them into a paste, then you could spread it on your bun. I mean, I hate baked beans in general. I'll see. I don't hate baked beans. I don't like the messiness of a baked bean hamburger. I don't like sweet food. And there's like a lot of sweetness in baked beans. Lots of sweetness. Yeah. That's why we like it. Yeah. More power to them. More power to them. Kenneth Dickerman, thanks for stopping my eyeball. It was a lot of fun. Pleasure to have you. I enjoyed it. I'm glad to see you. Even though we live so close, life's busy. Life is busy. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah, for sure. For Scott sure. Pryor is going to take us out. He's going to he's gonna take us out right about now. My thanks to Kenneth for joining us in the studio. You can connect with them on Instagram at kdickerman. And please check out the Insight Photo Blog at WashingtonPost.com. We'll see you next week. This is my dad's podcast, and it's called Eyeball.
Goodbye, you crazy animals.